behavior bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode 119. All right, so you guys can't see us or our guest, but I'm going to paint an image with my rhyme. 119, our guest's new mustache is looking fine. Ow. Meow. And <laughs> this, the, yeah, this must, and there was no mustache the last time he was here on the show. So mm-hmm. today, well, I guess before we go any further and mm-hmm. talk about our guest, we need a review of the day. So, Casey, okay. can you please? Pull up a review today and make us feel good. All right. So we don't want you guys to think that we only read the good reviews, which we prefer to. But when we do get one that is constructive, we take it upon ourselves as behavior analysts. We should be very um, good at taking feedback and practice what we preach. And um, we absolutely will read this one um, because it it gives us some good feedback that I like. So it's from Haley Hailstorm. Uh, she gave three stars and says, love these girls and it hurts me to write, but okay, Haley, this, you know, I'm not good with this constructive feedback. So this is big for me today. <laughs> All right. The behavior analytic and nature of this podcast has gone downhill. I often find the lovely ladies who host talking about the stresses of their life instead of about how to implement the interventions they're discussing with guests or getting more information out of it. Love them and love hearing about their lives, but feel like I'm getting less and less knowledge out of this podcast as time goes on, sadly. So um, for one, she said the sleep one was so excited to learn about effective sleep interventions and literally only got two notes. So Haley, you have been heard and a call to action has been made. And thank you for holding us accountable for um, the basis of the podcast and our mission of the podcast. We need to be called out on that if that's the case. And we really do um, and will bring back the robot voice um, and the behavior principles and be sure to tie them into every episode, whether it's an ABA episode or an episode with a serial killer. Yeah, we love the feedback. Don't think everyone that if you write us a bad review, we're going to read it out loud. But we just wanted you to know that we <laughs> we heard the feedback. We hear you. We don't see you because I might cry. No, I'm kidding. All right. So anyways, <laughs> let's get on to today's show. Today we have a guest that you've actually heard before twice. And maybe when I say the name of the podcast or the number of the podcast, you re- might remember who this person is. And it was episode 69 and we were too sad to let it go. So we carried it on to 69.5. And that guest is Nicholas Casey, can you just give us a little bit of a flashback to that episode so we can remind everyone who Nicholas is? Yes. So we talked a lot about kinks and fetishes and ABA and sex and so much stuff. And since then, I want to know what you know what's been going on because I know a lot has um, evolved since that that podcast, which is oh my god, over a year ago, I think, right, Nicholas? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a hot minute. So we have Nicholas and we have Jordan, and you guys know Jordan. She's also been on the show. She's our CEU. I call her director. She's she's the only person in the CEU. <laughs> Jordan, welcome. Nicholas, welcome. Thank you guys for coming back, and we have so much stuff to talk about today. Thank you. So what have you been doing? <laughs> uh, I've been up to quite a bit. Um, so I'm currently a PhD student at Modern Sex Therapy Institute's um, Just Completed Education. Uh, and I am about to do my comps next week, and then I'm going to be all but dissertation. Um, I'm very excited because my dissertation project is actually a partnership with study notes and, and a lot of very cool things that we're putting together. I'm not quite ready to talk about all of it yet, um, but we have been rolling out some amazing continuing education uh, here on the study notes site. And... I got to say, this has been one of the most fun endeavors. Um, I'm absolutely loving y'all's team. This is great. Well, Jordan's the best. I know you and Jordan have been working very closely on this. Like Jordan comes every time and she's like, oh my God, I had the best time with Nicholas today sitting and cutting his course. I like watched it five times while I'm cutting it because it's so good. (laughs) Is this true, Jordan? By the way, guys, it's Jordan's birthday today. Everyone should know. Um, But I do get the feedback that you don't want to know about our personal life. So anyways, (laughs) going straight to the behavioral concepts we will cover today. And I apologize. Me as the robot has been dead 
Also, Liat has been dead for a while, not to be too personal. So now Robot and Liat are back. All right, behavioral concept. We have positive and negative reinforcement, self-management, delayed reinforcement, antecedent interventions, functions of maladaptive behavior, assessment and treatment, punishment, avoidance, escape, replacement behaviors. We have non-parametric analysis. We have an ABAV design. We have MSWO, also known as multiple stimulus without replacement. We have motivating operations. Holy crap, the robot has never said that okay, many terms the before. The robot. Can I can I call out what the robot's doing right now? It's mm-hmm. a, it's something Casey does. Yes. Overcompensating. <laughs> <laughs> We couldn't just start with like three behavior principles. We just pulled out Cooper and threw everything into the. Yeah, you tell me I don't do concepts. I'll show you concepts. Here we are. <laughs> I uh, appreciate it. Yeah, we got you. We got you. All right. So, Nicholas, you've been very busy, I know. And while creating one of the courses that I know, just so anyone like understands how it kind of happens, that Jordan and Nicholas essentially have been, Jordan has been like his sole student while he teaches the CEU and records it. And so they've had a lot of intimate time, you know, <laughs> I mean, screen to screen. And I don't think Jordan's as tight. <laughs> <laughs> no offense. Well, Jordan's also getting married in like three days. So like get over it, Nicholas, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I was jealous for a minute, but I, I'm okay. Okay, good. <laughs> we're, we're besties. We spend a lot of time together <laughs> virtually, but it feels like, you know, together, together. I mean, this is what together is nowadays. I realize that like most of my friends are virtual, you know. Anyways, so Jordan, I know that when you had reached out about doing the, like this podcast, you know, you had mentioned that you guys had been working on one of the CEUs and um, the topic that, you know, the CEU is actually called Will I Lose My Dignity, ABA for HIV, A Powerful Need for a Powerful Therapy. And in this CEU, Nicholas, I know that you reveal that you are living with HIV. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm so happy that we have this platform that we could talk about this, you know, educate individuals further and let people get to know you a little more, especially before they take this course. And so thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with all of us. Thank you for being open to receiving this type of information. Um, you know, it's, it's always interesting when you're bringing something forth that a lot of people have never talked about. You don't know how it's going to be received. So very appreciative. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. So I, I, I want to talk about, first of all, you know, we operationally define behaviors usually, but I, I do want to like operationally define what it is to be or what HIV is and like what it's not. If you could give us a little bit of an idea of, you know, get medical here and explain to anyone listening. For sure. Um, so HIV is a virus, humo, a human, and I don't know why I'm blanking on that. It's human immunodeficiency virus. <laughs> um, so the virus itself is very different from AIDS, and I think a lot of people get those two confused. Um, the virus uh, gets into your system. It can hang out for several years before you ever actually uh, start noticing any sort of impact or effect. Um, but the virus works by basically uh, forcibly impregnating your uh, T cells, which are the main cells in your immune system that do like actual fighting. Um it turns them into little vessels that just create more HIV instead of fighting things. Um, and so what you end up being is like a factory to make more HIV and you're not able to protect yourself. Um, at a certain point, you end up with so few healthy T cells left that you have what's called acquired immunodeficiency syndrome or AIDS. AIDS is a syndrome, not a virus. You can't catch AIDS, you catch HIV, and may end up with AIDS. Um, so uh, at that point, um, AIDS, usually there is massive weight loss, lesions, um, and, and a whole lot of other health-related issues, and then uh, eventual death, uh, oftentimes from a bacteria or virus that other people wouldn't even really notice. 
Um, so uh, it can be pretty pretty intense at that level. But I will say very few people in, uh, in modern day are ending up with AIDS levels. Almost everyone is sticking with just an HIV infection and then managing it through medication. So it used to be that if you had HIV, you would get AIDS, right? Like it was- Pretty much, yep. Or some people wouldn't? Is um, Well, there were people who uh, uh, could go up to 10 years without having any sort of impact. And so thinking that they didn't have it, you know, they were going out and still spreading it and things of that nature. Okay. And how does one get HIV? You know, is it from, sure. I mean, um, I, I, I know a lot also, of people, you know, like say sex, but I think if we could just be a little like operationally defined a little further about, absolutely. you know, how So something I want to real quick acknowledge is that there are also people uh, most often of Nordic descent um, who are also relatively immune to HIV. They do not have receptors on their T cells that can take it. So there were some people who could come into contact with HIV and never develop AIDS because they never actually contracted it. Um, but, uh, speaking, wow, they're like superhuman, right? (laughs) So speaking as to how, um, how it is contracted, um, it can be contracted a lot of ways. I think most people think of anal intercourse, I think is probably the number one most thought of. And then the next most, uh, recognized would be, um, use of, uh, like sharing needles in any sort of intravenous drug use. Um, however, I want to note that that is not the only way, uh, or those are not the only ways. There are plenty of other ways. Um, up before the uh, uh, Red Cross was testing blood, people were getting it from blood transfusions. Uh, EMTs, first responders, uh, have continued to catch HIV um, from coming into contact with people's blood, trying to save their lives. Um, so you can get it a variety of different ways. Um, babies. Uh, have caught it um, through breast milk um, when their mothers had it. Um, so there's there are a variety of ways people can end up with HIV. Some people have had it since basically birth, um, uh, and other people, you know, got it way way later. Um, but the most important thing right now, I think, for people to focus on is is uh, the ability to manage it and get through and have a long healthy life even with HIV. So, quick question: When you talk about blood sharing, is it like have to go in through some opening or it could be like you could get blood on someone's arm that is sealed skin? That is a great question. It needs to go through a mucous membrane. So it's basically about um, about DNA, uh, any sort of thing that can carry your DNA. Um, so there's really not going to be spit too much. Um, the nice thing about spit is that it's not really conducive to to HIV, like hanging out there, there's a lot of things in your spit that can kill HIV. So uh, it's mainly going to be passed through, and it's not going to be passed through urine or feces either. It's going to be passed through seminal fluids, um, or it's going to be passed through uh, blood. Um, You're not going to catch it from tears. You're not going to catch it from sweat. You're not going to catch it from uh, having blood on your arm, unless you have an open wound where a mucous membrane is is out there and it can go right through it. there really has to be um, uh, some easy way. Uh, it can be caught vaginally. Um, it's less likely to be caught that way as the uh, vaginal mucous membrane is thicker than the anal mucous membrane, which is why a lot of people do catch it through anal sex. Um, it can even be caught orally if uh, you have open wounds in the mouth of any kind, like you're not supposed to give oral sex to somebody uh, right after you flossed and things of like that. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. These are all, you know, I'm thinking of like anything, like I didn't even think, I mean, yeah, when I floss my teeth once every three years, it's like a, like a, <laughs> like a Freddy Krueger kind of situation, you know? Yeah. So you don't want to go down on somebody while that's going on, right? <laughs> You've got some open mucous membranes in between your teeth. Well, I don't think you want to do anything with anyone when, or do anything with that someone when my teeth are like that after I floss them every now and then, you know? That's fair. We need to find you a good contingency to get you increasing your rate. Of I know, I know, I know. It's it's pathetic. Um, okay, so I want to ask some questions in terms of you know you said it. It used to be 
like essentially was it like a can I say like a death sentence when you would ha- get HIV? Oh, yes. I mean, that's the reality. That is the reality. It was. Okay. And I feel like I could relate in some senses because, you know, anyone who listens, I have lupus and it's also and a lot of people actually like there's a lot of similar similarities between lupus and HIV, but I think the one difference is lupus is your body is overactive attack uh, mm-hmm. is H- is that right? Uh, and yeah, HIV so is like it, underactive it, in the immune system. And HIV, our immune system is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller until it's gone. Okay, so mine's like so overactive attacking my own body that it that it's not as efficient at catching what it actually needs to. But so essentially, but we're both living with, uh, you know, invisible illnesses, which can be challenging at times because people can't see it. Absolutely. And so I I want to, you know, I, I well, I want to go there, but I also want to start from the beginning. Okay. So let's say, <laughs> let's, let's go back to when you found out that you were HIV positive. Can you like take us back to that moment? Yeah, uh, I can. I was 22 years old. I was sitting in my uh, final for um, advertising and design, I think, um, in my undergrad. Uh, It was five days before graduation, and I had been waiting on my result. Um, I was very nervous because I had developed what I was pretty sure were lesions. I had been waiting and waiting and waiting on my results. It hadn't come. So when it came during my final... (laughs) I just basically said I was having a family emergency and my teacher let me go out into the hall and I took the call and they told me, you know, you're positive um, and we need you to get into treatment right away. Um, You're actually teetering on AIDS levels. Boom. (laughs) Wow. Oh my God. My heart just like, because I think that the stigma or what I have, I've, you know, when I was in college, I was, highly sexual active <laughs> with no uh, protection no. besides the point. But anyways, I used to have the biggest anxiety <laughs> about that, about going to get tested and for not only just HIV, but any STD. Um, and I don't know why, um, I guess because I had, the rule wasn't enough. Um, I wasn't engaging. I was, you know, the, co- the contingency I hadn't come into contact with of actually getting positive on anything. So I continued to have risky sexual behavior and, but I remember I used to have this biggest fear ever that I'm going to die. If I get AIDS, I'm going to die. Or if I get HIV, I'm going to die. Um, so like, I can only imagine what's going through your head at 22 when you hear that. Yeah. There now, was... How old are you now? If you don't mind. Uh, I'm 35 now. Awesome. Okay, cool. Wait, um, and let's say something about that 35, Nicholas. What was no. that number? Is 35 special? I, I should be dead by now. Yeah. Um, based on the projections of me having AIDS, I uh, should not have been able to bounce back the way that I did. Um, yeah. So once I hit 35, I was like, whoa, like, <clears throat> I, I've really hit a new lease on life here. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going beyond wow. what I thought. I mean, I can um, see it with the mustache. That's, I think that's probably what happened. Because you look <laughs> hot. Hot. Okay. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it's it's something where, you know, at 22, I had to start thinking about like, okay, you know, most people, they're looking at like midlife, they start thinking about retirement, and then they're going to grow old, and they're going to have this whole life. And I was like, okay, I've got like maybe 10 to 15 years. Um, I've got to figure this out. How am I going to retire in the next five or six so that I can have some quality of life before I die? That was not possible. So then I was like, how can I just find a job and, and a life path that I'll feel good about until I die. Um, and then I didn't die. I actually started getting better, which was great. <laughs> so tell me this. So let's say you, you find it out, you find out and it's like, Oh, I should go find a way that I could, you know, secure enough money and stuff so I could retire. Mm-hmm. Was that your, like, you're like, Oh, now I'm going to go be a responsible. No. Like, was that, was that no. your response or like, were you no. like, YOLO. <laughs> Not at all. And I think that we really have to recognize that behavior can serve a lot, uh, a, a lot of very convoluted <laughs> functions here. Um, but I, uh, no, I, I very much, my first um, 
my first kind of reaction to it was screw it. Um, I'm dying. Um, so if I'm dying, I'm just going to do what I can to feel good. So actually my initial reaction, and I'm going to go ahead and throw out there, I have been sober since right after all of this. Okay. But my initial reaction was to go get really, really high on meth. Mm. Um, had you never escape. used it before? Had you used it before that? I'd used it a couple of times before that, um, mixed in with sex. Uh, it's called chem sex. Um, at this point, I was just like, when you do it, you're going to be high for about 12 hours and you're not going to think about the rest of the world. That's what I need right now. I mean, it sounds like a so, really great escape behavior. Uh, right. It was it was an escape behavior. Um, and it was an escape behavior that was not healthy. Um, and so actually, I had to go back in for testing um, right after that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they told me, like, your T-cell count dropped 20 points in, like, a week. How is that possible? You must have done something incredibly unhealthy. You're on a quick path to death. And I was like, I did math. And they were like, you're never going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> like, hello, wake up. How was meth for- a choice? Just out of interest. I'm meth, like obsessed with drugs. Meth has become kind of a designer drug in the gay community, especially mixed with sex. We call it chemsex. And then there's like this cute little term called Tina. We say, oh, you're going to go party with Tina. And it just kind of, it wasn't something I ever wanted to try. I'll throw it out there. The first time I ever did meth was an accident. Um, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gonna... yeah. That's what I said about my experiences. No, I'm just kidding. No, no realistically, I'm not going to say I was an angel. The first time I ever did meth, I thought I was doing coke. Uh, so I'm not, okay, I'm not... I was going to say, I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't an angel by any means. But what I am going to note was that growing up as a gay person, I was socially isolated from many of my peers. I watched them have relationships. I watched them uh, get to engage in behavior for which I was punished, but they were rewarded. Um, and growing up that way, you feel like a less than. You feel like another. And when you get brought into a, a society and you got get brought into um, a group with completely different socially valid contingencies and different behaviors, you're, you're like, whoa, I can fit in here. I want to experience it all. And that's where things got a little risky for me. <laughs> um, but yes, so I, I will say it is a common response if there is already drug use present or alcohol use present to dive deep into it, which is actually the exact opposite of what your body needs at that time. Also, I just want to shout out to the the gay community for amazing branding, you know? Like you took this like meth has like a like not the like a meth head doesn't really have the best like name, no teeth you know? and like face yeah yeah, and- yeah but it's like a Tina I'm part of okay, Tina. I, I want to throw like, out there that the bulk of the gay community is not on Tina. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. Most of us are not doing this. Uh, it, but it is, I will say, more common in mm-hmm. uh, gay culture to mix chemsex than, than you see it in straight culture. Although it is when really you say chemsex, it's in like straight culture. Does that mean like you're doing meth and then having sex? Um, so it means sex under the influence of a chemical. Okay. Um, so, you know, uh, a lot of people mix MDMA or Molly or ecstasy, whatever you want to call that. Um, a lot of people use, um, uh, heroin or, um, or other types of downers, usually to no positive effect there. Um, but there's uh, downer. Yeah. like. I know it, that usually just ends in, in disappointment, but like there's there's a lot of um, a lot of reasons why people move into chem sex, um, but but I will say one of the most common reasons is uh, that there's like a shedding of all of your problems. You feel incredible and beautiful, and you're having sex for hours and hours. That sounds terrible. That literally sounds horrid. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> It depends on the person, but like for, for right. a lot different, of people, different reinforcers for different folks. That's right. Um, but I will say, uh, you know, it's all it's all smoke and mirrors, right? Um, drugs, uh, uh, when the drug wears off, all of your problems are there. 
um, and usually amplified because you did not deal with them and you didn't sleep. Uh, (laughs) A lot of issues Um, and everything just keeps snowballing and getting worse. It's a very hard behavioral hole to dig yourself back out of. You're you're actually like a walking miracle and you're like a cat with multiple lives because the fact that you were able to, well, steer clear of getting addicted to meth, you know, and just be like, all right, I'm off. You know, I always was thinking, I always was like, I'd love to try heroin once, but I'm scared that like I wouldn't be a one-time thing because I'm like, when I watch these shows, it looks kind of cool. <laughs> I mean, not the effects, but the fact that well, you, that you're clear and then you're, you were almost at the AIDS level. This is wild. So I actually did, I teetered into AIDS level. So, um, and once you've had that, like, uh, so technically speaking, it's in my file that I have AIDS. Um, but I bounced back. I don't, I don't meet that criteria, but, um, my T cell at its lowest, my T cell count was 199, which is one point into AIDS. What is it normally at? The average healthy individual's T cells are going to be somewhere between 900 and 1200, depending on their sleep levels. And if they've been sick recently, that's insanely low. Wow. Wow. Uh, the highest that might have gotten since my diagnosis was 570. So you're like halfway. Mm-hmm. Which and means how does it... Sick, it takes yeah. me about twice as long to recover. Um, I'm also twice as likely to get sick in general. Um, when my T cell count was lower, like when I was doing, um, uh, we didn't used to have RBTs, so I was called an implementer. Um, but when I was doing that type of direct work with children, um, you know, they'd wipe boogers on me and I'd end up with staph infections. Dude, same. <laughs> Legit. That's why I had to leave working in a classroom. And then mm-hmm. it's like, oh my God, dude, you do not spit on me. Do you hear that? Or like, oh my God, this kid <laughs> came in sick. Fuck you. <laughs> what is this mom thinking? You know? Yeah. Well, and, and the trickiest part is like, when it is a hidden disability and it's impacting, it's, it's impacting your behaviors, it's impacting your decision-making, but no one else sees that. So they just think you're making weird choices. Like, you know, <laughs> they might judge you or tell you you should do it differently. Um, and that can be really tricky, especially I think it is maybe, uh, and I don't want to speak for you, but I want to say this is a commonly thought thing is that it is maybe easier to divulge that you have cancer or lupus, or something where society doesn't look at you and go, what'd you do wrong to get that? Exactly. Right? Totally. So that, like, I, I always said that. It was like, the one thing I could say is like, that I have all these issues. I was like, I, like, I was like, well, at least I have like the, like, I couldn't have done anything. Like, cause then it's mm-hmm. like a different level that, but like people don't realize it's so common, like, you know, the, in different communities. Well, think about um, a systemic level of reinforcement and punishment and acknowledging different things. Our government uh, labeled AIDS uh, GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency, and opted not to put any government funding towards assisting with the AIDS crisis um, in the early 80s, uh, stating that, you know, we're a Christian country, and if God is punishing gay people, like, who are we to intervene? Um, it wasn't until they started realizing straight people were getting infected too that they changed the name to AIDS and started applying government funding. So the government was actively allowing us to die because they felt it was an effective use of punishment for being gay. That is fucked. That's the Reagan administration. Wow. That not cool. Not cool. not cool at all. So and so let's talk about, you know, What, you know, so you find this out, you, so also, I think I had mentioned this to you the other day, but you said you had not read it. This book, Over the Top by Jonathan Van Ness. Did you read it or not? You know, you read the literature, like the articles, I read this. Anyways, (laughs) so he's coming out in this book about, um, not coming out, he's definitely out, uh, about being, uh, have being positive with HIV. And when I read this book, I was totally fascinated by how far HIV has come or the treatment or the, you know, management has come. So I, I think a lot of people assume like you must be taking a million medications. So 
I think that is something to look at is that that is going to be different for different people. Um, most of us these days are lucky and we are on a single pill. Um, I take one a day. It's called Big Tarby. It's little too. Um, I mean, little by comparison to what I used to take, uh, still probably to the average person just looks like an average pill. Um, I'm like, Oh, it's tiny. Um, but, uh, if you have any sort of resistance in your HIV strain, HIV is a retrovirus, just like coronavirus. So it, it changes and there are strains. Um, so if you have one of the resistant strains, then the single pill might not be an option for you. You might have to go back a generation or even two generations. If you go back uh, like three generations, you're looking at AZTs, which were basically like almost the equivalent of chemo, but in a pill and directed at HIV. So people would take those, they would get incredibly sick. Um, we do still have a lot of side effects from our meds, even in the single dose. Um, one of the most common of which is um, uh, digestive issues. Another common uh, concern is um, nightmares, uh, horrifically vivid nightmares. Um, and then uh, there are other side effects as well, things like um, the effects of dementia, um, uh, short-term memory loss, um, there's fatigue, there are a lot of different issues. And what's really interesting is the um, symptoms of the medicine and the symptoms of HIV itself are very similar. And so there have been people um, who are like, oh, you know, my HIV, it's, I've got good T cell count. I'm going to get off the meds because the meds are making me feel gross. And with my T cell count high, I shouldn't feel gross. So they get off the meds. But the issue is it's a retrovirus. So once they're off the meds, it says, hey, what's up? You know what? I am now immune to the meds. And then... Their T-cell count starts dropping and they go to get back on their med and it does not work. And if they're not really closely managed by a, a team uh, who's looking at their T-cell count, then it can drop really low um, without them realizing it. Uh, that happened to my Uncle Pablo um, and he ended up dying of pneumonia uh, within, I think it was like five or six months of getting off the meds. So just so I understand, when someone, they're probably, uh, is this the same as like, let's say often cancer like the like or you're not dying of the cancer or the aids it's usually something that happens as a result of is yes. that how it is like it's like oh yes. you might catch pneumonia with it or you know you might get absolutely well and, and think about cancer itself your body does produce cancerous cells every couple of years on its own and usually your immune system attacks them before anything happens and so you never develop cancer well if you don't have an immune system, then when those, that happens, you're going to develop cancer instead. Okay, and so uh, when so you take the medic, when you're, tr uh, this is what I thought was cool when I read this book also, when you are, you're not only like keeping the numbers down or up, down, so right? You want to keep your, you want to keep your viral load down. You want to keep your T cell count up. Um, the, uh, the viral load is managed through medication directly. When you have a high viral load, you are likely to pass it on to other people. So you want to keep your viral load at what we call undetectable, which means they take multiple vials of your blood and they cannot find any HIV active in any of it. Um, if they can't, then it's undetectable. If it's undetectable, they say even your blood is not contagious. Your sperm or your vaginal secretions definitely are not contagious. So at this point, we say undetectable equals untransmittable. And so a goal of any sort of therapeutic work in working with people with HIV is to make sure that they get down to undetectable. If they are undetectable, they still legally need to tell their partners that they have it. However, their partners are not at risk. And that is super important because you are actually at less risk having sex with somebody who has managed to make sure that they are undetectable than with somebody who might have HIV just free floating in their system. They haven't had any effects. They don't think that they have it. Mm. And then they pass it on. That's what I, that's, you literally just said exactly what I was going to say. I was like, this is wild. Like it is undetectable. Yep. Like, so I've been undetectable since 2010. And I think wow. something really, really amazing, Nicholas, is that um, you have really worked to instill a lot of your behavior analytic knowledge in teaching other individuals with HIV and AIDS 
how they can get to UU better or yes. how they can stay at UU. So, I mean, if, if you want to tell us a little bit about, I would um, love to. yeah, I'll, I'll let you do the, the whole title so that I don't like. No, you're good. So I appreciate this. So what, um, what I have been doing uh, for years now, because I'm like, we have, we have ABA is such a cool behavioral method by which we can change that contains so many little methods within that are effective and can be applied to multiple populations. HIV, it intersects across all populations. So let's find a, a therapy that intersects across all populations that we can start to use to help these individuals. And so looking at it, um, what I've been doing is I've been, and I have to kind of preface this and note that this is not funded work. This is work that I am using my pro bono hours. Um, I believe in giving back, so I always have pro bono hours. Um, or this is work that um, I have simply uh, done through just volunteering with other orgs and things of that nature. Uh, so uh, what we have done is basically going in and saying, hey, you know, you either have a new diagnosis or you've been struggling since your diagnosis. Um, what are the deficits? What are the areas that you're having? Let's look at important areas for you to be able to function and move forward in life. You need to address health. So have you connected with a doctor? Are you connected with a social worker? Speaking of social worker, are you able to access funding? Um, have you uh, learned about what grants and what options are available? We have something called the Ryan White Act, that as long as you make less than 30 something thousand a year, you are going to get completely free health care now that you have HIV. Um, we got to keep you from ever making more than that. Otherwise, your health care costs might actually be bigger than your salary. So we got to keep you kind of poor. And so like there's there's this whole thing of planning around money management and health and then looking at, OK, you know, how often are you on, uh, taking your meds? Um, if you're missing doses, are you aware of how all of this works to make sure that you're starting to um, to find reinforcement in taking your med, even if your med makes you feel sick and you're you're viewing it, you're relationally framing med as a punishment. So really working with them on that. And it's that delayed reinforcement also. Exactly. In that um, moment, well, you might feel like crap. And over time, you're going to feel better and better. Exactly. And helping them also recognizing oftentimes delay discounting played into the issue. Right. Um, so whether it was chem sex or maybe, you know, like this MSWO that was done um, by Jermalowicz, uh, Lemley. Mateus Anyone listening, that's multiple stimulus without replacement. Sorry, Nicholas. That is OK. Yeah. So, yes, a multiple stimulus without replacement um, preference assessment um, was done uh, in 2016. And it is. Uh, in Java, the article is called a multiple stimulus without replacement assessment for sexual partners, purchase task validation. And um, so in looking at this, they were able to determine, um, page uh, 726, that um, when it, you are highly attracted to a person, you are more likely to engage in risky behavior if that person suggests it or if uh the risky behavior is perceived as like the only way that you can get sex with this person. So let's say this person is moderately attractive. You got to have sex. Um, and, <clears throat> and when I say attractive, I mean to you, right? Because it's completely subjective. Um, but if you find this person moderately attractive, you got to have sex and you realize you don't have a condom, you're actually more likely to suggest something else or suggest waiting and going and getting a condom than you are if you find this person highly attractive, in which case then you are more likely to say, oh, maybe we'll do a condom next time, or, you know, the likelihood is this person's safe. And so then you just move forward. So they've really been able to demonstrate through ABA that we're more likely to make risky decisions the more attracted we are to the person. Um, the stronger MOs, essentially, right? Yes. Like, wow. And so uh, you have two competing values, right? Um, this right here, right now, or, uh, you know, long, healthy life. <laughs> like, and, and as, as Casey was saying earlier, you start getting reinforced, uh, in your idea that risky sexual behavior will not, uh, have a P 
punitive consequence. Um, every time that you do it and you don't end up with a punitive consequence, it's kind of like, oh, you could be looking at it in terms of your overall statistic and saying every time you don't get a punitive consequence, one is more likely next time. But that's not how most people look at it. Most people go, oh, I didn't get any, any issue. Let me do it again. So I'm just kind of noting that. <laughs> that's interesting because, you know, it's it's kind of like that variable ratio schedule also that it's like, oh, I didn't get it, you know, but I guess variable ratio of, you know, I guess it'd be, well, maybe punishment. I don't know if you'd continue to do it again after that, but, or whatever that very, like, okay, it, it didn't happen. But also I'm wondering, is it, so with COVID, let's say in mm-hmm. the beginning, I was religious, like I'm talking, cleaning off my boxes, you know, every single thing. And it's like, for some reason, there was like an unsaid something in the world where like everyone suddenly like chilled. I mean, I guess there was a vaccine, but also that like people were still like wearing, you know, and then suddenly it was like everyone does, you know, and now, well, I always knew that like I need to be more careful than most people. What I'm wondering is the longer that like, you know, the contingency got further from me, you know, it was like, I don't really know that many people anymore getting it. It seems like people are like doing things normal, blah, blah, blah. You kind of chill out. Does, does that all, like, like same idea? Absolutely. Well, and now we also do have preventative things that people are doing as well. So in the gay community, a lot of people are on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylactic. Um, it basically binds to your T cells and it prevents HIV from being able to. Um, and then uh, there's something in it that um, if HIV is just hanging out in your bloodstream, basically it's it's not conducive to it hanging out for years and years. Um, <clears throat> there's also PEP, which is post-exposure prophylactic. Um, so PEP is like a super heavy dose of PrEP that you have to use very similar to the morning after pill. And also- I was PEP. about to say plan B. It is plan B for HIV. So there's an antecedent, there's an antecedent intervention here or Yeah, and it is and then a consequent. Uh, I think what's really interesting is, you know, before PrEP, um, the main one that people were focusing on, of course, was condoms. And I think now, especially sex educators and social workers really still want people to be focusing on condoms. Because there are other things out there as well. However, um, what I have uh, definitely seen is a reduction in condom use with an increase in PrEP use. Um, so we are seeing like higher rates of syphilis and things like that popping up. But again, you get rid of that and three shots, right? Versus HIV. Um, although I will say syphilis treatment, no bueno. It hurts a lot. Um, that's a very painful set of shots. Um, so uh, I do want to note that prior to PrEP, um, ABA was also involved in uh, looking at antecedent strategies for trying to get um, people at gay bars to take condoms. Now, granted, they were not actually able to determine what was being done with those condoms. It's possible that they were using them like bubble gum and blowing huge balloons out in the parking lot. Who knows? But we do know that in using an ABAB reversal uh, design, um, in which condition A was uh, simply a bowl placed um, by the door, a bowl of condoms. Uh, uh, condition B was the bowl placed with a sign above it that had recent HIV statistics um, and really implied that you could catch it. Um, they were able to see that in condition B, there was about a 30% increase over condition A. Let me get the exact results for you here. Um, in condition A across Three bars and two test conditions, 510 condoms were taken. So just placing a bowl out got 510 condoms taken, which is really cool. Like that alone was a nice step because prior there wasn't even that. Um, but then we look at what happened when they put the sign. It went from 510 to 748. So really wow. recognizing, yeah, something as simple as popping a sign above a bowl and sitting at the bar, drinking a little cocktail and taking data was behavior analysis. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they think of behavior analysis, they're thinking of getting into a clinic, sitting in front of a child and, and shaping physical uh, behaviors. Um, 
And, and certainly that is ABA. And also, so is this. So what, what I actually want to say for anyone listening, when we talk about the seven dimensions of ABA, right, one of them, first of all, is applied. Are we working with socially significant behaviors? And I would say this is pretty effing socially significant, right? This is like, I mean, it could be life or death and it could be, so th- there's multiple behaviors you're looking at here, right? And behavioral, another one of the seven dimensions, looking at, okay, so there's multiple behaviors you're going to need to be working on here. First of all, like the actual sex, you know, like what are people doing? Putting on condoms, taking tablets. And then once, let's say you are positive with HIV, what self-management skills are you using? And, you know, what behaviors, I mean, there's just so many meaningful, significant, applied, uh, you know, this is very applied. And so if you could look at ABA outside of the space of autism and say, holy shit, this is doing the exact same thing. You're generalizing these same strategies we know and taking it here. And then the other word I also wanted to add in here was effective. And that's also one of the seven dimensions. And when you look at a study like this, like you were saying with this like non-parametric analysis of like, yes, there's a sign, like intervention versus no intervention of having these condoms in a bowl. Like when you said you went from 500 something to like 700 something, that's a, that's like clinically significant. Absolutely. Now, again, we don't know what they were doing with the condoms. Maybe they were like, I still have like broke college kid syndrome. Like if someone's like giving something out for free, I feel like I like need <laughs> to just take it. <laughs> like take it. Yeah, totally. It's like Trader Joe's. Like they give away the cutlery. It's like I think I need to take it, even though I have plastic cutlery at home. And that know? is that is you know something that even in that article, which was also in Java, um, uh, they called it out that you know they recognized that that's as far as it went. But I think would have been a really cool follow-up would have been if we worked with members of the HIV community and saw like, you know, how are any things that we're doing impacting people? What I have is I have individual data with clients who want their privacy and their autonomy respected very, very much. Um, So I'm not just out publishing this stuff because I'm not doing it in a mass study. I've just been applying our science to a different population here in St. Louis, um, partnering with Five Ent Health. Um, and then also uh, I run a group now called Positive. And Positive is very different from a support group. Um, we do have one hour of support every other week, but we say if you want support group feel, there are plenty of those around. Um, what we're trying to do is create behavioral change in a positive direction. And so we do outings and we do cooking seminars. Um, you know, how many colors of food can we get into this one meal? Um, trying to get a variety of rich antioxidants, things like that. Um, we do mindfulness sit downs. Um, and then we also, we just kind of live. So we do outings to the drive-in. We go out to, um, we'll go out to the gay bars and we'll all order non-alcoholic beverages and hang out. Um, just things like that so that we're still living, living, um, and moving forward. Um, and so that group has gotten pretty big. We have over 50 members, um, and just always working on getting better. Um, and we have a lot of fun. We did Bob Ross painting night the other night and I was like, hold (laughs) on. Just a tiny little axe or a happy little accident. This is wow. That's a beautiful, happy accident. You guys can't see it, but it's gorgeous trees and a sunset. I did all of that with markers to a Bob Ross painting thing because I didn't have any paint. <laughs> I, love I was it. like, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Generalization. Well, the focus of Bob Ross painting night was acceptance and flexibility. So can no matter what you do, can you call it a happy accident and move forward? I was going to ask Casey, you. I know. Casey. I'm going to do a Bob Ross night with you. I was go, I'm so inflexible. I was going to ask you um, about acceptance commitment therapy and how you like, A, you know, how does living with HIV affect your daily life and how do you incorporate those six processes into your everyday life? And maybe even yeah. that's part of what you do in positive. Absolutely. So I wake up every morning and I remember right away that I'm HIV positive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not... Uh, like waking up and going, hey, you have HIV. It's waking up at 35 and feeling like you're 50. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> these old bones. <laughs> uh, 
So, uh, you know, I wake up in the morning and I have um, one of the more common side effects of having HIV is like a lactic acid buildup. Um, and so I wake up and like everything is just so tense. And so I just kind of got to drink a big glass of water and start moving. And then I can have my coffee. I can't go straight into coffee or I lock up. Um, so really um, uh, having to start my day with acceptance. Right. Um, and immediately uh, as I'm realizing that I feel less than I would like to feel or feel worse than I would like to feel, I suppose would be uh, more accurate. Uh, in those moments, I just remember what I value. And I'm like, I'm so actually grateful <laughs> that I know what it's like to feel 50 because that means I'm 35. I'm alive. Um, I am grateful as I am sitting here stretching and trying to like move around because I have my husband laying there in the bed next to me. Um, and, you know, I can look at the fact that like, at 22, I was pretty sure I was never going to find somebody and that I was going to die alone. And that didn't happen. Now I'm living partnered. Um, so looking at what I value helps me move into any sort of committed actions, right? I just want to further this. I want this life to keep happening. Um, so there's a lot of that. Um, I sometimes will get caught up in fusion. Um, it's so interesting how even now, every now and then, I get this what if what if I didn't have it? Oh my gosh, my life would have been so different. I was supposed to go into the Air Force as an officer. I'd be retiring in two years if I had done that. Um, definitely have those thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, especially that's, as I get That's closer. normal. That's natural. Right. But as I start moving in um, and just kind of, uh, or sorry, leaning into my day, this is a great life. Why would I want anything different at this point? I am in control of what I do in this moment so that I can have a better tomorrow. What I've been doing has been working. Today is better than yesterday. Let's keep going. Yeah. Like you've gone yeah. through something so hard and you've, you're here, right? So like um, I was listening to a Glennon Doyle podcast earlier this morning about um, just the fact that the what ifs. We I live a lot in the what if. And um, I recognize that I start, I'm trying to, you know, start my day differently and not thinking that, or when I go to bed at night, like what if my, I go really, really dramatic. Like my husband got in a car accident tomorrow and I didn't have my partner who's my best friend. And like, what if, um, study notes fires me tomorrow? What if like, it's like the, this cycle and dude, I have to literally give her security every day. And I'm like, <laughs> you literally are all over this. Like you have nowhere to go. Psycho. like, not, I've been practicing a lot of that too. Like, well, that is not what is now. That is not what is the truth, mm -hmm. right? The truth is I have a husband who's laying next to me. I have a good job to wake up and go to in the morning. I have a, you know, best friend in this work environment. I have a great office I can go to, but living in the what if is really difficult. You know, um, living in the what if, one of my questions that I ask myself when I catch myself doing it, and it's, it's snarky, but my goodness, my own snarkiness cuts me off. And I've started doing this with my clients in therapy sessions. I was kind of, I was like, is being this snarky going to be okay in a therapy no, session? I love, I love snarky. It's been working. I just ask, are you a wizard? <laughs> I like it. Can you, do you have a crystal ball? You cannot see the future. You're not a wizard. Uh -huh. Just enjoy now. It's almost like being, I have realized that I used to being, hate, I used to hate being called on my bullshit. And now I love it. And I lean into it where I'm like, you're totally right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not a wizard. I don't know the future. What mm -hmm. I do know is now. And now is safe. And I can make smart choices now so my future can be better. Let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> it sounds easy and it's not, right? But that's why if you keep practicing and practicing that thing is the only way you're going to get better. But I think what's beautiful is that it, it sounds easy because it is parsimonious. Exactly. And so, again, looking at keeping it behavior analytic you're coming up with something where as long as you can get over the hump and make this work, you now have a very simple and conceptually systematic way of repeating this every day. Boom. Mic drop. I do just want to add, like, just again, to remind anybody that's listening at home that we really wanted to do this podcast because we wanted to, well, one, bring Nicholas back, first of all. And second, because we really wanted to show you all that, like, this course is almost this conversation, but expanded a lot more and showing you if you're in the field right now, 
Maybe you're working in a school or clinical setting, or maybe only with children, maybe only with a specific diagnosis that there are a lot of spaces that have an extremely high need for your behavioral brain. So right now, if you feel like what you're doing in the science is not your cup of tea or you're finding yourself burning out in a way, there are a bunch of different avenues with really, really high needs where you can still have a fulfilling career and you can really help people out with something because our science is, and I don't want to take all of Nicholas's words because that's what the CEU is for, but our science is there to help in so many ways. And it's just really untapped because a lot of behavior analysts don't realize that you don't need to go back to school to be able to work with people diagnosed with AIDS or HIV, that you already, you have the skills there. Obviously you need to learn about the disease itself. However, it's right there for the scientists for or the behavior analysts that really want to want to do something maybe in their community in a larger area maybe you know somebody with AIDS or HIV and you've been thinking about how to help and this is what you can do and it's it's literally right there a big question i get asked a lot is what's the difference between my scope of practice and my scope of competency and what jordan just said is you as a behavior analyst have the scope of practice, right? But you're going to need to gain some supervision and insight into get your competency up because Absolutely. you may not be competent in working with people with HIV, but you have everything in your tool belt in your practice, right? As a behavior analyst to implement these steps, these um, procedures. Absolutely. And I think, you know, something to, to just tack on to that is um, there there are so many aspects of, uh, of what people need in HIV-related care. So again, you're looking at medicine adherence. You're looking at dietary needs. You're looking at exercise and movement needs. You're looking at community assistance access needs. You're also potentially looking at functional communication needs. How do I convey to other people in my systems that I have this? How do I convey to other people in my systems what help I need and advocate for myself? How do I convey to a potential partner that I have this? Um, so there's a lot of work that we can be doing that I mean, it's basically all stuff we already do with other populations. It's learning about this population and their needs a bit and then applying your skills over. And again, at this point in time, I do it for free because it's very rewarding to me. And also, I'm hopeful that at some point people can get this stuff funded. I will note that I do apply for grants and more and more people are noticing. I'm not saying I've been approved, but I am getting hit up by people at HIV orgs and things like that. And they're like, hey, what are you doing with this? Uh, we noticed that you applied for this and that you're doing it through ABA. What is that? You're supposed to be working with children with autism, right? And so then we get in and we start having these talks. And I think that these talks are an important first step. So again, if, if this is something that you're you're wanting to break away from a specific population, move out and use this generally, even if not towards HIV. Um, a lot of this- Share your of superpower. Advice. I think yeah. we need to share our superpower. Absolutely. Let the world know. That's the other thing is the world has us kind of misconstrued as children's autism therapists. And uh, if we can let the world know that's not what we are, uh, a lot of us, about 72%, like to focus in that area, but then that also leaves about 28% of us who aren't. Um, and so just really recognizing um, that our field, we've got just so much. We've got so much. Can you tell us about the course that you have put together that, you know, this, if you like what you hear here and you want to learn more this course that you have put together and Jordan has been very working very closely with you. Can you guys tell us about what it is and what to expect and all the details so people can attend and learn more? Absolutely. Um, so it is a very candid, <laughs> uh, candid CEU presentation, probably the most candid one I've ever given. given. Um, I've never attended one this candid. I can tell you that. Um, I, uh, I share my journey, um, and I spend a lot of time explaining it from a behaviorist's perspective. 
Uh, I also spend a lot of time acknowledging systemic influences and, and other things that have impacted my behavior in my journey. And then I also always try and relate it back towards, you know, this is what other people might be experiencing as well. So that is kind of the first like third of the presentation. Um, but then it moves very heavily into problematic behaviors that get in the way of successful HIV recovery. Uh, and then it moves into methods by which we can address those alternative replacement behaviors. I provide even uh, in there a crosswalk of this is the behavior, this is the potential function, here is the alternative replacement, boom, boom, boom. Um, I try and make this very clear because my goal, again, recognizing behavior analysts do already have a lot of these skills, is that by the end of this training, you only need a little bit more fine-tuned training to start delivering this stuff. And you could reach out to me and I can help you with anything that you needed at that point. Yeah, for sure. So we're doing something really fun with this course. Um, and I, so this is going to come out in around June. So the time that you're hearing this, we are having a really exciting um, opportunity where there's two things that are going to happen. Well, first, this course is going to go live in June. Um, we're going to put it live and we're actually going to do it at a discounted price. And the reason for the discounted price is because the need is so, so, so high for individuals with HIV and AIDS to access wraparound care that we want to get as many behavior analysts understanding this course as possible. And so not only is this course going to be for a discounted price in June, but we're actually providing a bundled option where you can bundle this course with two other Nicosis courses, which are really, really incredible too. One is about affirming care and the other, it does take a little bit of a turn here and this isn't wrapped into the same thing, but it's a little adjacent where we go into kinks and it's our first kink course. So we're really excited about that. And that one is called a, well, the general topic is about the kink community called ABDL or adult babies and diaper lovers. So there are going to be two options to get Nicholas's courses for a discounted price because of the fact that we know that this need is so, so, so super high. In addition to that, um, CEUs by Study Notes ABA, we will pre be providing a percent of our proceeds to the group that Nicholas uh, mentioned a bit earlier, Vivant Health, which is a group that Nicholas's group, a lot of groups, <laughs> works really, really closely with. So Nicholas's group positive works really closely with Vivant Health, and we want to be a part of really making that change and really eliminating all the stigmas, as we mentioned before, that come along with AIDS and HIV and kind of, for lack of a better term, also put our money where our mouth is. And we're really excited about all of this. And yeah, it has just been such a pleasure. It, as Liat, Casey and I were joking before, like Nicholas and I spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one, and I, every time I walk out of there and my brain is like, oh my God, there is so much stuff that as a behavior analyst that mostly works with the population of teens, young adults diagnosed with autism that I didn't even realize this whole world opens up. So we really encourage you to check it out. Not so much just because, you know, it's our CEU, but because the information is so valuable and there's so many different populations that we can help as well. And this is a great time seeing that this is coming out in Gay Pride Month. Just saying, you know, there's some temporal contiguity there. I think I use that right. Eek. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Either way, I want you guys to keep a lookout on our CEUs for all the different courses that Nicholas is dropping. Um, we're working on something very cool. You'll hear all about it soon. But Nicholas, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and sharing this. It's so important that we're vulnerable and open about these things, you know, to educate others and disseminate the information and to also, I mean, so that, and also light people up about where we can use our knowledge to make huge changes that are socially significant and beyond. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I can't thank you enough because, uh, and I've, I've, I've said this before to Jordan. I don't know if I've ever said this to you, Liat, but like, uh, and, and you, Casey, I know I can't see your face, so I just, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I have, um, 
I have so much appreciation for the fact that you're letting me shed light on all the crazy, unique applications of ABA that I'm doing that I wish other people were. Um, you're, you're giving me a voice that I didn't previously have. So thank you. Oh my God. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all around. So guys go check out the courses. We will definitely have all the information and how to sign up. And we'll also link those, uh, those articles that Nicholas had shared earlier, uh, off Java, which were awesome. And that's all we have for you today. So as always, thanks for tuning in. You know where to find us. You can find us on our website, behaviorbitches.com. You could find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast. You could find us on Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. If you have any interesting topic or you want to reach out to us, you could also do that on our webpage. There's a contact form. We are always looking for interesting topics and guests and really just anything cool or you want to give us a compliment, we'll take that too. Go ahead, leave us a five-star review with nice things to say and we will read it out loud. That's all, guys. As always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way you can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need super. him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him. And he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 